0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Litigation Radio. I'm your host, Dave Scriven-Young. I'm a commercial and environmental litigator in the Chicago office of Bacar Abramson, which is recognized as the largest law firm serving the construction industry, with 115 lawyers and 11 offices around the U.S., on this show, we talk to the country's top litigators and judges to discover best practices in developing our careers, winning cases, getting more clients, and building a sustainable practice. This podcast is brought to you by the Litigation Section of the American Bar Association. The Litigation Section provides litigators of all practice areas the resources we need to be successful advocates for our clients. Learn more at ambar.org litigation. This decade will surely be remembered as the COVID-19 decade. The pandemic's impact has been felt in every country, every profession, and every aspect of life. One of the most critical impacts is the division that the American government's response to the pandemic has brought to families, schools, school boards, places of worship, and workplaces. The legal profession, and specifically litigators, are at the forefront of this division. We are the ones helping clients challenge and defend mask and vaccine mandates and other government orders. And, as employers ourselves, we are also developing and implementing COVID-19 policies for our law firms and attempting to navigate the governmental, regulatory, and scientific changes that seem to come on an almost daily basis. But can businesses, including law firms, legally impose vaccine and mask mandates on their employees? And what can employees do if their personal wishes or circumstances prohibit them from being able to comply? Today's episode features the incoming chairs of the ABA Litigation Section's Employment and Labor Relations Law Committee, who will help us to analyze these cutting-edge issues. So our first guest is Jerry Cutler, who serves as Senior Vice President and General Counsel for the New School in New York City. Jerry has been lead counsel in numerous federal labor and employment law cases and in matters before the National Labor Relations Board and Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. A past recipient of the American Jurisprudence Award in Trial Practice, Jerry has published extensively over the past 26 years for Thomson Reuters, Bloomberg BNA, Warren Gorman Lamont, and West Publishing. Jerry has a BA from Pennsylvania State University and a JD degree with honors from the University of Maryland School of Law. Welcome to the show, Jerry.
1: Thanks, Dave. Good to be here.
0: And our next guest is Michelle Berard who is a widely recognized management side labor and employment partner and chair of the West Coast Labor and Employment Group in Cozen O'Connor's San Francisco office. For more than 30 years, she's represented businesses in single and multiple plaintiff cases and collective actions. Her clients, who run the gamut from Fortune 50 powerhouses to burgeoning startups, trust her practical business-centered advice and counsel in a wide range of workplace matters. Michelle is a frequent speaker on employment law issues for clients and outside groups and earned her bachelor's degree from the University of Michigan and her law degree from the University of California, Hastings College of Law. Michelle, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you, and I'm glad to be here. Right. Well, Jerry, let's start
0: with you, and let's talk about mask mandates. So many state and local governments have mandated masks in certain situations. So the city of Chicago, where I am in, and in fact, the whole state of Illinois, has mandated that masks be worn indoors. So for those of us who are employers and for those who try to advise employers... What role do they have in enforcing these governmental mask mandates? So, in other words, can employers be sanctioned for refusing to enforce mask mandates?
1: Well, the requirement that employers conform with and enforce workplace safety and health standards is not new. Uh, this has been the case for, for many years, as we know, under the Federal Occupational Safety and Health Act. And more recently, during the COVID Pandemic with OSHA's emergency temporary standards, uh, first in, in the healthcare industry and more re- recently in workplaces generally. And we know that employers who fail to comply with these standards can be subject to enforcement actions, fines, or penalties by the various health and safety agencies. So
0: let me just follow up on that. So, if, you know, for example, in a law firm, I might be wearing my mask as I walk into the lobby. But when I come into the office, I might, you know, take my mask off. Technically in violation of the law, what sanctions might my employer uh, face if, you know, OSHA were to do an inspection, for example?
1: Well, it it depends on whether your employer knew or or should have known that you were not in compliance. As a practical matter, I don't believe that OSHA has the resources to do on-site inspections. But what they might do is send out enforcement letters requiring employers to attest to the fact that they have these procedures and protocols in place, that they're holding employees accountable, whether they've had any instances in which employees have not conformed, and what action they've taken uh, in response to that.
0: Interesting. So, um, Michelle, let me just follow up with that. And assuming that the workplace is not in a locale that has a governmentally required mask mandates, can employers set a policy to require a mask be worn anyway? And if so, what do you believe would be the legal basis for that requirement?
2: Well, I think it's health and safety. And I do believe that employers can set a separate mask mandate. And the one thing that we're talking on a federal level I think everybody who is listening needs to be aware that all states have their own specific guidelines concerning masks. And in California, not only do our does the state have a mandate, but each separate locale generally has a mandate. So you have to be in compliance with all. Assuming there's no mandate, I think if you are an employer has an obligation to provide a you know safe work environment, and if you are in an area where there is a high level of the Delta variant that is spreading and you're aware of that, then I think the employer should be able to and would be protected if they wanted to have a mask mandate. I am not sure that the same would hold true if you were in an area where there was really no outside justification for a mask mandate. And I'm frankly at a loss to see in the United States where that would be right now, but I presume there might be somewhere.
0: That's interesting because I I had always thought, and some of the commentators that I've heard suggested that no matter really what the Delta variant or, or what the risk was, that an employer could actually have a mandatory mask policy, and they have that as akin to something like a uniform requirement. For example, if an employer can tell you, well, you have to wear a tie to work, can't an employer tell you you have to wear a mask uh, to work, for example? Michelle, do you see that as, as something similar or do you see that as something different?
2: I do see it as something similar. What I was trying to point out is that mask mandates are uh, are challenged, Employers are facing lots of different challenges from employees and putting aside the, you know, the accommodation aspect of a mask mandate. But if you are in an area where you're in a high, a high you know, area of a high contagion, then employer has a, you know, a, a very defensible position if challenged. If not, and you just want to say it is part of a, a uniform I still think you can have a mass mandate. I think that you with the the political climate in the country that might be challenged more easily than somewhere where you can really show that it is related to health and safety in the workplace.
0: Understood. And we, we certainly have seen, you know, a lot of challenges, if not in the courts, but certainly in the court of public opinion. And so Jerry, um, you know, coming at it from an employee point of view. You know, there are a lot of folks who believe that they can and and should refuse a mask mandate from the government. Let's, you know, do a hypothetical and, and say that an employer has put in a mask mandate for health and safety reasons in terms of, you know, protecting themselves against COVID-19, are there certain situations where an employee can actually refuse to comply with a mask mandate? Because I think a lot of employees kind of assume, you know, maybe their legal rights are being violated or the like, but what are the actual, you know, legal possibilities to refuse a mask mandate?
1: Well, I think as we see mask mandates become more prevalent in workplaces and in other settings, we're going to see an increase in individuals coming forward requesting accommodations for health conditions that might prevent them from wearing a mask. It could be asthma, COPD, some sort of breathing disorder. And in in those situations, uh, employers in particular are going to have to consider making accommodations, obviously engaging in the interactive process with individuals to identify ways in which their situations and the protocols can be adjusted. So it might be something like social distancing. Uh, Employers may need to consider changing the work schedules of individuals uh, who cannot wear masks. They might require more frequent COVID testing of those individuals.
0: Okay, let me ask you this. Um, Assuming that an employee uh, doesn't fall with any of those exceptions, And it's just kind of their personal belief that, you know, they don't believe masks work and they just don't want to wear them. Can an employer fire an employee for failing to comply with a mask mandate?
1: Well, sure. It's like any other workplace policy. Employers want to make sure that they promulgate the policy, uh, that employees are aware of it. Employees have the opportunity to ask questions about it. But ultimately... If employees do not want to conform to the, the reasonable policies that their employers impose, they have to make the decision. The decision may be to, to work somewhere else, work for a, a different employer that doesn't impose such a requirement.
0: And then coming at this from a employer perspective, what sorts of policies and procedures uh, should employers put into place to ensure that they're covered in the event that they need to terminate someone for not wearing a mask?
1: Well, as I said, it's, I think, critically important for employers to communicate in a fulsome way what the policies are, why they're putting them in place, and to give employees the opportunity to raise questions. Uh, Some employers may want to have a town hall session, a a webinar, some other type of opportunity for employees to, to ask questions and receive answers. And I would say also make sure that the, the policy is being consistently and uniformly applied to all individuals who are similarly situated and that the, the consequences are made known to employees as part of the policy, that if you don't comply, this is the likely result.
0: Michelle, any other thoughts that you might have on mask mandates before we turn to uh, vaccine requirements?
2: No, I agree with what Jerry is saying. And I just to be clear to the audience, we're really I think we're Jerry, we're really talking about a non-union environment. If you're in a union environment, there's slightly different obligations for an employer. But because there's so much politics surrounding masks that I you know, I agree with Jerry. Yes, you can have a very a clear policy, distributed, give individuals notice an opportunity to ask questions about it, a time you know, an opportunity for a time period to within which to comply, and then a deadline for compliance. If you have a large number of people in your facility that, for whatever reason, um, personal reason, are not willing to wear a mask, you know, you can then you can decide what the consequences are. Maybe it's a leave without pay until such time as a mask, you know, the mask mandate is lifted. Maybe it is a, a termination, and I think that there are depending upon, again, the jurisdiction you're in and potentially the local ordinance that applies that, you know, a compliance or termination is a, a reasonable response, provided you've done all the notice requirements that Jerry pointed out.
0: Well, it's interesting, uh, Michelle, that you noted uh, the difference between a labor and a non or a union and a uh, non-union environment. And I think, you know, we've all heard, at least in the Chicagoland area, the negotiations that have occurred with the teachers unions, for example, concerning, you know, vaccine and mask mandates. What are some of the considerations that employers uh, need to make when negotiating uh, these issues with unions?
2: Well, that's that's a. That's a very broad question. You know, obviously, for an employer, it's something that impacts the um, the terms and conditions of employment for the unionized employees. So the employer would have to work with the union to come up with a an agreed upon mass mandate. And I don't know, Jerry, have you faced this at all? Because you deal with a lot of different unions, and I'm sure that it's come up.
1: It has, and I appreciate Michelle drawing the distinction between a, a unionized and a non-unionized environment. The mass mandates have not been, understandably because they're minimally intrusive, as big of an issue in unionized settings, certainly as the, uh, the vaccination requirements have been. But in either situation, a, a mass mandate or a vaccination requirement, uh, unionized employers need to look at their collective bargain agreements to see what provisions in there may bear on their ability to implement and create new policies, need to understand what their obligations are, obviously, under, under the law, under the National Labor Relations Act. Uh, but I think just as a practical matter, in, in my experience, it's always a really, really good idea To communicate with the union, to let the unions know what, what you're considering, to make them part of the conversation, not necessarily, although this may be the case, that there's a legal or technical requirement, but just so as the representative of your employees, that they're engaged in the discussion and they can communicate this back to the membership.
0: Well, let's turn to vaccine mandates then, um, and we've seen more companies moved into the direction of vaccine mandates. I saw a recent ABA Journal article that noted that employers were introducing or considering new COVID nineteen vaccine policies for employees, and those employers were governmental entities such as the U.S. Department of Defense, Delta Airlines, Walmart, uh, for example. And so, I know our audience would be curious to know if employers can actually require its employees to get a vaccine as a condition of their employment. And if so, what would the legal authority be for uh, allowing that? And I don't know, Michelle, if you want to kick this one off.
2: Yes, (laughs) that is a um, we've seen more and more employers and government agencies requiring vaccines as a condition of employment. And I think we're going to see even more given the FDA's removal of the emergency use authorization for at least the Pfizer vaccine, which I presume that the Moderna one is, and Johnson & Johnson will follow at some point in the near future. So yes, employers can require a vaccine. The EEOC has taken that position. A number of different um, state organizations have taken that position. And the reason why an employee could not be required to have a vaccine really comes down to whether it's a disability-related or somehow related to someone's religion, um, in which case the employer would need to accommodate those needs. But I think that we will see even more uh, employers mandating vaccines. I mean, we need to get the country back and running. We need to get the economy functioning. And that might be, if that is a more employers requiring vaccinations as a condition of being in the workplace. I think that is the way that we will be going over the next few months.
0: And it sounds like the FDA approval of vaccines like the Pfizer vaccine, for example, gives more credence to these vaccine mandates for employers and it might impact employee, you know, exemptions, you know, for for folks who believed for one reason or another that, you know, they wouldn't get the vaccine until the FDA approved it. Well now there's at least approval of the Pfizer vaccine. As you said, we, you know, would expect you know, additional um, approvals. So how do you think the additional approvals will impact uh, this uh, scenario?
2: The argument that employees were making that that they did not want to take part in um, experimental medical procedure of vaccination, which, frankly, I don't believe that's the definition of an emergency youth authorization. But nonetheless, that argument will no longer exist. So then it really will come down to whether or not the person has a Medical reason or a disability that needs to be accommodated.
0: Got it. So, Jerry, let me put you in, into this uh, scenario. So, there are folks who perhaps don't qualify for an exemption. They don't have a you know true religious belief, or they don't have you know some sort of other medical position or or status that would give them an exemption, but folks just don't want to get a vaccine because they're fearful of getting vaccines or for other reasons. What should employers do for these folks who refuse the vaccine?
1: Well, the first thing they need to do is check their state law. So some states, California, Connecticut, Mississippi, West Virginia, have some of the strictest vaccination uh, exemption requirements. They don't recognize philosophical or religious exemptions. But if you live in Louisiana, which is on the opposite end of the spectrum, they allow all exemptions, medical, philosophical, and religious. So that's the first starting point, is make sure you understand what the law is in your state with regard to exemptions. And once that's understood, As Michelle indicated, it's a fairly straightforward process in determining whether or not an individual has a medical condition that constitutes a disability and is entitled to an accommodation or they have sincerely held religious beliefs that are contrary to a vaccination requirement.
0: And Michelle, are there certain things when you're crafting a vaccine mandate procedure or policy? Are there certain things uh, that you want to include in that policy or, or avoid to not put into those policies when you're putting those together?
2: Well, you know, it's interesting that it's almost the same type of requirements that we just spoke about from mass mandates. You know, you have to be clear what's expected. You have to have it, you know, distributed to employees, give them an opportunity to ask questions, to be on notice as to when the compliance date is, to allow themselves to get the vaccine, you know, sufficient time period. And, you know, in this instance, depending again, as as Jerry said, on the, the jurisdiction that you're in is if the person can't comply that they have an opportunity or a mechanism to raise their concerns internally so that somebody can't comply because for example they're I don't know have an allergy to whatever might be in the vaccine might have a medical reason that they can go to human resources or you know whatever the entity is within the within the company to raise those concerns so that the employer then has the option to engage with that employee to see what if any accommodation can be made for that individual. So they're they're almost the same as you what you would have as a mask mandate. It's now um it's the same as a, a vaccination mandate.
0: Got it. Well then let's sort of talk about both the vaccine and mask mandates together in terms of communicating with employees and, and resources that you want to make available. Obviously, you know folks who listen to the show are are litigators of all all stripes, uh, solo practitioners to you know folks who practice in at very large firms, and both of you come from different practice areas um, and practice settings. And I, I wonder, what are some I guess best practices in communication? Obviously, the larger firms might have more resources in providing, you know, things such as nurses in-house or other resources in-house to provide to employees who have questions or concerns. What are some things that employers should be doing and what are some things that they should be avoiding um, when communicating with employees? Jerry, why don't we start with you?
1: Sure. And Dave, what I've seen to be very effective is where employers provide employees with the opportunity to speak with experts. So immunologists, virologists, public health officials, in an open setting, questions and answers. These are trusted individuals who are giving information that's grounded in, in medicine and in the science. That's, I think, a very effective tool that employers can use. I think surveys are a good idea, gives you a sense of what's happening, what the sentiments are in your population. With respect to vaccinations, you can find out how many individuals are vaccinated. Some employers are actually requiring individuals to disclose their vaccination status. I think another best practice for employers is just to make it as easy as possible for employees to be vaccinated. So that might be on site, although it doesn't need to be. There are, in most areas, there are nearby pharmacies and other locations that are administering vaccinations, uh, providing employees with time off to be vaccinated, providing employees with time off for recovery if they're having any uh, contraindications from receiving the vaccination.
0: And Michelle, any any additional thoughts you might have on how to communicate these uh, mandates to employees?
2: No, I think uh, I agree with Jerry. I think that the more information, the more town halls, webinars, FAQs. If there's an internal, you know, an intro website for employees to access information. If it is a you know a smaller company without those resources, then you know checking with the insurance carriers or the you know, the health benefits carriers that they use to see what options are available and providing them to the employees and obviously as much as possible in writing so that employees know they can ask their questions in a confidential manner to individuals that have the medical background and and I guess they the other best practices just make sure that, you know, that Supervisors and management aren't offering their own, you know, opinions as to, you know, the, the various vaccines, that they're not engaging in any medical advice, but providing information to employees so that they, they can ask others that have the expertise their questions about the vaccination
0: That makes a lot of sense. So, Michelle, let me throw another uh, hypothetical at you. So uh, let's just say you're a law firm and you have a mask mandate that is put in place by your state or or local government. You also have a firm-wide mask mandate, and you have a potential client who's coming into your doors who refuses to wear a mask. Now, setting aside sort of the business development issues... Can a business such as a law firm legally refuse to serve that potential client um, as a result of a customer's or a potential client's failure to abide by that mask mandate?
2: Yes. <laughs> I live in the Bay maybe it's I'm a little skewed here. I live in the Bay Area where, you know, you there are, you know, restaurants and indoor activities in the Bay Area that you cannot access without showing proof of a vaccination. So I think that might be more of the wave of the future. So if it is a, if you're a law firm and you have a client that will not abide by what your policies are for your office, then, you know, unfortunately, you're going to have to meet that client elsewhere because I I don't think you can have a, at least in the Bay Area, you wouldn't be allowed to make that exception. But even in other areas, I don't think it's a good business practice to make exceptions for individuals who come onto your premises. So again, we always keep talking about there's a state, there's a federal, but there's also local laws that are going to apply. So short answer is, yes, if you're in the Bay Area, yes, you could refuse to allow that individual access to your, fact, you'd be legally obligated to do so.
0: And Jerry, you're probably seeing that in the university context with uh, your student students are your customers in a university context. I assume, you know, I think all of us have heard sort of the the mandates that students are facing, not only in, you know, grammar school and, and high school, but university wide as
1: well. Right. So so we know uh, and it's important to to recognize that there are already existing vaccination mandates at the K through twelve and post secondary levels. And that's been the case for decades. What I think is really important to also understand in in a school setting is that this is our shared responsibility to ensure the safety and health, not only of ourselves, but everyone in that community. And and I've seen a, a tremendous amount of support for that concept across all school grades and universities. Obviously, we've seen some of the court cases. There have been very, very few, and, and as we know, they've not been successful in, in challenging the mandate. Certainly not in the uh, in the public universities.
0: Well, let's uh, move on to sort of the the final area, which would be. The reopening of offices, um, at least where you know, in my firm, you know, we've gone through the process of of trying to reopen. We've reopened some offices. We've stayed hybrid, um, you know, with some employees and and staff and attorneys. So I wonder if either of you have any tips on procedures that uh, law firms should put into place when reopening their offices. And Jerry, I don't know
1: if you want to uh, start for us. Sure. Dave, I would say it's really important to be flexible and agile, because we may need to to pivot on a moment's notice if conditions change. And if anything has been constant over the last year and a half, it's been the lack of consistency in how things have proceeded. What we thought was okay three months ago, a month ago, or even a week ago is no longer the case Today, So it's important to be flexible. I'd also say to be compassionate, to be caring of the individual fears that people have. You know, we're not going to all approach this in the same way. So some patience and compassion as we work with our colleagues, our clients, our customers, I think will serve us all very well.
0: Michelle, what other tips might you have on procedures that employers uh, look at or might want to put into place when reopening offices?
2: One of the things that we've been talking about is talking about masks and vaccines. Okay, so when an employer is coming up with a return to work or reopening offices – Then again, you need to make the distinction look at the local area and decide. You know what is what's required where my office is as to masks. As I said, you know the Bay Area has some very strict mask mandates that would cover most, if not all, private employers. A little bit different for vaccinations so far. Our vaccinations is that in in San Francisco, if you're entering a restaurant, a bar, a club, a gym, or any other large indoor event, you have to show proof of vaccination. So that's as a first as a practical for employer is you have a, as Jerry said, a lot of the, the compassionate, here are the rules, here's how we're going to treat people. But you also have to be very mindful as to where your office is and what you are as an employer obligated to do vis-a-vis mass, or vis-a-vis vaccinations. And to spell that out very clearly for employees as a return to work so they are given an adequate opportunity to come into compliance with what the office is now going to require. But again, as I think we're all saying, and Jerry, you said it quite eloquently, we have to be prepared to pivot because if anybody had said to us, last December, that we would be in this situation in September. We probably would have said with the very beginning of the vaccinations, you know, we're, we're over this. And if anything in the last few months have taught us we're not, we might be in the middle of it. So we have to be prepared with our policies that, that they are flexible enough to reflect whatever the next move is by the COVID virus.
0: Well, before uh, we pivot to final thoughts, I just want to remind um, our audience that uh, the litigation section of the American Bar Association has over 30 substantive committees um, that litigators can join. Of course, our committees feature exclusive newsletters, podcasts, and networking events focused on your practice and professional interests. And all of that is free for litigation section members. You can find out more at americanbar.org groups litigation slash committees. So um, now it's time for final thoughts on mask and uh, vaccine mandates, returning to work uh, procedures. Jerry, any final thoughts for our
1: audience? Well, Dave, on masks, you know, there, there used to be signs, I don't know if it's still the case, uh, at convenience stores and and maybe restaurants. No shirt, no shoes, no service. I, I, I think the mask requirements are are an extension of that, and and we need to, you know, just be sensible that... It's not a terribly intrusive or burdensome request to make of individuals in those circumstances. And the health benefits can certainly be considerable, both to ourselves and, and to the people around us.
0: And Michelle, any final thoughts?
2: Yes, we're talking about all the legal aspects of returning to work and masks and vaccines. And I think one of the things that employers should be aware of is the really the human toll of the pandemic on, on everybody. So I find that successful employers take that into account and have been mindful of that throughout the year and maybe are stepping up, you know, EAP services and other types of services to help people, you know, live through the pandemic.
0: Excellent. Well, we're out of time. And I just want to say thank you so much to Michelle Miller and uh, Jerry Cutler for being my guests on the show today. Uh, Thank you so much, Jerry and Michelle. Appreciate it.
2: Thank you.
1: Thank you, Dave.
0: And now it's time for a quick tip from the ABA litigation section. So I'm going to welcome back Daryl Wilson to the show. Daryl is an in-house litigator managing global litigation and investigations at Tyson Foods, Inc. in Springdale, Arkansas. Daryl, how are you today? Hey, David. It's going well. How about yourself? Oh, I'm doing wonderful. So uh, I understand you have another tip for us. Yes, I do. So,
3: you know, as many courts continue to navigate COVID-19, some courts have issued orders requiring attorneys to be vaccinated or regularly subject themselves to COVID-19 testing for in-person hearings. So due to this reopening of many courthouses for in-person hearings, I want to focus today's tips on refreshing lawyers of things to remember as you prepare for hearings. So my first tip for lawyers is that you want to meet with your client prior to the hearing to discuss your strategy for the hearing whether it be a motion to dismiss, motion for summary judgment, or a motion to compel discovery, you want to make sure that you have touch bases with your client and that you have kind of strategized where you're going to go with that particular hearing so that your client is aware and they know what you plan to do and they know what to kind of expect when you report back to them on the results of the hearing. But one thing that I would say that many lawyers should do is uh, you want to review all of the pleadings to understand the content of the motion that you are preparing to argue. And that's my second tip. You want to look over all of the pleadings that have been filed to make sure that you don't miss anything or if there's a necessity to update case law or provide some substance to your hearing that if the case law that is cited in your pleadings has been revised or overturned by the court or potentially a new ruling that is quite on point for you may have come out from the time that you drafted the argument and the time you actually report for the hearing. So in that, you want to take the time, which is my next tip, which is to outline your hearing. Many times, some lawyers will draft out their whole argument and kind of get to the hearing and read their argument from paper. And that sometimes does not go over well in the courts because you could potentially read too fast for the court reporter to track everything. Or you could just be so focused on your, I guess, script that you don't even really engage the judge or your opposing counsel as you prepare and argue that uh, motion. So as you outline, it gives you an opportunity to only provide bullet points. And as you provide the bullet points, it will remind you where you want to go with those particular points. And you can speak elaborately to the judge to convey your position for the particular motion. After you've had an opportunity to outline your arguments and put them on paper so that you know your roadmap and where you want to go, I would say for my next tip that you want to actually practice those arguments. You want to actually practice them in front of a mirror so that you can see your hand gestures if you decide that you want to argue with your hands to outline or show that roadmap to the court. Or you particularly maybe you want to practice in front of a colleague or a friend so that they may be able to provide some advice to you as you prepare for the argument. So after you've practiced your arguments, one thing that I want to make note of, if you plan to reference case law or exhibits, Make sure that you make extra copies of those exhibits so that you can provide a copy to the court and also to opposing counsel so that they can follow along with the case law or the exhibits that you want to provide for the hearing. Now, after you've done all of your initial preparation for the substance of that motion that you're planning to argue before the court, I would also advise lawyers for my next tip is that you'd want to check with the court's orders regarding any mandates for participants in the wake of covid Some courts have provided that in their orders that you will appear for the court, sign in and maybe go back to a waiting room or go back to your car and wait to be called on when it's time for your motion to be heard. So you want to check with the court and make sure that you know what their orders are regarding in-person hearings during the wake of COVID-19. The last step that I have is that you want to prepare to arrive early to the courthouse to ensure that there are no extra protocols in place before you're even allowed to enter the courthouse. If you fail to arrive in time, you may potentially delay the start of your hearing, which could potentially upset the judge and also maybe even your opposing counsel because you failed to take the due diligence to see all of the protocols that may be in place in reporting to the courthouse now that we're in these COVID-19 times. So if you follow these tips and preparations for your hearing, you'll be certain to appear well organized and prepared for your hearings. And if there are any extra steps regarding the interest of the courthouse, like I said, you will avoid any self-inflicted delays to your hearing because you took precaution to be aware of the new protocols related to COVID-19. And as always, a reminder, stay safe, my friends. And Dave, these have been my tips for today.
0: Well, great, Daryl. Thanks so much for taking us behind the scenes on how to prepare for court hearings. Really appreciate you being on the show today. Thank you. Well, that's our episode for today, and I want to thank several people for their help with guest preparation and booking, Lawrence Rosenberg, Rich Rivera, our fabulous producer, and Michelle Oberts, who's on staff with the ABA litigation section. My gratitude, as always, goes out to the co-chairs of the litigation section's audio content committee, Josh Jones and Tyler True. Thank you to Lawrence Coletti and our audio professionals from Legal Talk Network. And last but not least, thank you so much for listening. I'll see you next time.